0: This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist.
1: Hey there, Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance here, and this is episode 17 of the Earn Your Edge podcast. And our guest this week is the very first caddy that we've had the privilege to interview, and lucky for us, it's probably the most prominent and accomplished caddy of the last 25 years or so, Jim Bones Mackay, who, of course, was longtime caddy to Phil Mickelson and now commentator for NBC and the Golf Channel. And Cam and I have been really motivated to get the perspective of a caddy in one of these interviews. Hopefully you've picked up on the fact that we see Golf IQ and Tactical Intelligence as being a very clear separator for the best players in the world. As coaches, we see this all the time. It's amazing how some players are just able to pick up on certain environmental cues and it's a skill that can be a massive separator. And as you've witnessed from Bones, his years in the bag with Phil, and and now we're lucky enough to hear it as viewers, but no one has a, a higher golf IQ than Bones. He's demonstrated that he has that ability be able to pick up on those situational signals and and clues and do it on the biggest stages and under the highest pressure situations in golf. And he and Cam dig into some really cool topics on kind of what those caddy superpowers are, how he developed them. And clearly as golfers and coaches, there's plenty to take away from getting a little glimpse behind the curtain and, and gain a better understanding of that nuance and detailed tactical consideration that a guy like Bones is seeing as he dissects a golf course. So normally I say sit back and enjoy, but I think this one might be a good one to sit up and pay attention, take some notes on, but enjoy episode 17 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Bones Mackay and Cameron McCormick.
0: The first question I want to fire at you comes out of curiosity because I don't know the story behind it, but where did the nickname Bones come from?
2: When I started caddying in 1990, I was 6'4 and incredibly skinny, just uh, <laughs> ridiculously skinny. And I went to a tournament in March, my third month caddying. And I was caddying for Larry Mize at the time. And we were at a term, this tournament in France with several other American players and their wives and caddies. And Fred Couples was on the trip. And I'd been a caddy for such a short amount of time. He had no idea what my name was. And we were in a restaurant and, he didn't have any silverware and I was over by the silverware. So, he started yelling these names at me, hoping one of which would be mine. <laughs> you know, Jackie, Joey, you know, Bobby, Timmy, all this stuff. And, uh, I, you know, he finally yelled out Bones because, I, again, I was so skinny and I turned around and, and you know, it brought stuck. him a knife and fork and he called me Bones the rest of the trip and it stuck. So, it's, uh, it's funny how that works. That is beautiful.
0: Great story there. Why caddying then? You, you came out of college. You played, played golf in college. You picked caddying. Why?
2: Because like every kid that played in in high school and and whatnot and and, and the start of their college career, I wanted to play professionally like everybody wants to. But it was incredibly obvious to me very early on that I wasn't even close to being good enough. So playing wasn't going to be an option. And I loved watching the game played at a high level. Even when I was a little kid, I would go out to mini tour events in Florida and watch the pros play. I just always loved it. And I thought, well, the next best thing to kind of being there and and playing would be to caddy. And uh, when I was in high school, there was a, a player in my hometown of New Smyrna Beach, Florida, who who had some status on the tour back in the 80s. And I, on two or three occasions, when I was in high school, I went and caddied for him. And I just thought it was the coolest job in the world. And uh, I went on and went to college and played my golf and, and, and just uh, I, I thought to myself, gosh, if I could somehow get back into that caddy business, it would be... Uh, I think the great thing for me, because I'd always wanted to work outside and be around the game, and uh, it was just—it was a goal of mine from a very early age. Mm -hmm. And and in your early years caddying, you caddied for Larry Myers and Scott Simpson
0: and Curtis Strange, major champions. How quickly did you, I guess, have to get up to speed to caddy at a level that a major champion felt comfortable having you on their bag as a as an asset?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You have to learn in a hurry, and and you know, my first couple of months out there, I was. I was lost to some degree. I mean, I could do the, the nuts and bolts of what caddies do, but uh, I realized in a hurry in, in January of 1990, there was a whole lot more to the job than, than I ever would have guessed. So, you know, whether it's walking the courses or thinking about temperature change in terms of how far your player's ball is traveling, you know, when you're in certain parts of the country, it came on me pretty quickly. So, uh, in a hurry i was trying to acquire as much knowledge as i could i was i became very good friends with joe Lacava very early on in my caddy life who's you know was working for fred couples at the time and and now works for tiger and i would pick his brain a lot and he was a a source of a lot of information for me
0: yeah and and were there other sources or other means that you went about in terms of accelerating your development so you got up to speed quicker versus slower
2: Early on, I would watch a lot of golf on television and try and listen to as many player caddy conversations as I could. And in and, and my first year in 1990, there were a couple of occasions where I went back on the golf course after my round was over and just watched other people, other players and their caddies do their thing. And you, you learn, you know, what's important about being a caddy. You know, it's uh, it's a job, you know, certainly that you know, anybody can do 90% of, but it's that other 10% that's going to going to make or break you out there in terms of your success. And I was able to figure that part out. And, uh, and I went to work on that 10% as much as I possibly could. Yeah, it's a great way to express it. The 90% is the majority of what we see, but
0: there's that extra 10% that separates someone moving from good to great to world-class in any field. Can you illustrate what you feel to be that 10%, what I call superpowers in any endeavor, but in, in this case, caddy superpowers.
2: I think in caddying, it's a number of things that we could, we could spend a lot of time talking about. Certainly one of them, the first thing that comes to mind for me is not being afraid to be wrong. I think that it's the easiest thing in the world as a caddy to be out there in a, in a big situation with your player and have your player say, hey, I like 7-iron and you just go, gosh, I like that too. You know whether you do or you don't. It's really easy just to agree with your player because there's going to become those there's going to come those times when uh, you're in a really big situation and you guys are not on the same page, mm-hmm. and, and that's when you know you, you need to make hay as a caddy in terms of that ten percent that we're talking about, and it's about. You know, make making your case to your player and being able to back it up with with information. You know, it's one thing just to say to your player, "Geez, I can't stand seven. I was thinking eight. But if you can tell them, you know, you, you know, on the third hole yesterday, in the similar wind and similar temperature, you hit that eight iron 163 yards. Mm-hmm. If you can back that up with concise information and say it in as few words as possible, you can you can transfer a lot of not only knowledge, but a lot of confidence in what you're saying and he's going to feel that much better about what he's about to do.
0: Right. It's interesting you say that because in my experience coaching, I'm actually, I like to invite and I'm looking for a discussion, recognizing that coaching, similar to playing, similar to caddying, I guess similar to Uh, trying to get somewhere when there's more than just one person involved. In fact, sometimes when there's just one person involved and you're having a conversation with yourself is a, it's a two way street of this is what I think. This is what what you think. And uh, what's the best course of action to yield success. So very interesting. You say that, is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of caddy superpower?
2: Well, I I touched on it briefly. I think also I mentioned the thing about not being afraid to be wrong. I also, it's, you know, how you present your case Mm -hmm. and, you know, there were a couple of occasions, pretty early on in my career with Phil, where you know I had one opinion, he had another, and I did a horrible job of presenting my case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 I remember learning from those mistakes, where you know, and, and reminding myself, it, it's not so much about in this particular case whether you're right or wrong. Is if you can't do a good job, if you can't in ten or fifteen words or less, let him know in a informative. A logical way why you don't like what he's he's got in his hands or you know in this particular case why you think you know driver will go through the fairway at the end of the dog leg you know you, you're not doing a good enough job as a caddy and i remember i remember learning that uh, the hard way in denver one year where i just you know didn't present my case nearly as well as i as, as i should have or could have and i remember you know, vowing to myself after that, that I would never make that mistake again. Yeah. Conviction, certainty, but make the case. And then the player ultimately has to be the one to the that right? That's exactly right. I mean, I was very fortunate in my, in my career to work for a guy in Phil who, you know, even if we got it wrong and, you know, we, and we hit a club over a green or, or whatever the case may be, he would say to me, you know, that's okay. I was the one that took the club out of the bag. So it ultimately rests with me. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredible atmosphere to work in as a caddy because it frees you up. And, you know, you don't have to live and die with every single thing that goes on out there. It enables you to, you know, to be, you know, honest and forthright and, and to disagree with the guy and, and know that at the end of the day, you know, you're going to shake hands on the 18th green and, and come, come go back and give it your best effort the next day.
0: So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. You mentioned something very early in the conversation here regarding distance in temperature at altitude that anyone that watches golf can't fully appreciate. And, and that's the the layer of expertise and nuance that you bring to broadcast, which I think is absolutely amazing. But just for the purpose of this interview and the podcast and the listeners out there that either are supporting a competitive golfer at whatever level or are themselves a competitive golfer, can you describe whether it's generally or a specific situation that comes to mind the granular level that you guys, you would peel back the onion or both of you would peel back the onion in situations where it's not a routine shot?
2: Well, in terms of the temperature thing that you referenced, you know, I found out very quickly and and I laugh about it with my friends, when the subject comes home, when I'm home playing golf with my buddies, you know, you know, I am so bad at golf that w- when I go out there and I hit a six iron, it doesn't matter if it's 60 degrees or <laughs> if it's 85 degrees, it's going to go X number of yards because I just don't hit the ball as flush or as hard as these guys do, as you well know, Cameron. And, uh, we had this amazing, uh, incident with Phil very early in his career where he was, he was playing the last hole of the tournament in Tucson. It was a very, very difficult driving hole, a tough par four. He had a part par to win the event and uh, he hit it in the fairway and and we got out there and and you know we were waiting for the green to clear there was a ruling in front of us up by the green so i gave him his yardage and it was a 6 iron and we were really plugged in on the yardages and there was a very short conversation it was like you know i've got you got 196 you know wind's doing x i like 6 he likes 6 we're ready to go but this ruling in front of us took an inordinate amount of time. There was something crazy going along with a guy taking a drop away from a sprinkler that he didn't like. And we were out there for several minutes. Well, as it tends to be in the desert there in Tucson, the sun was setting as it was later in the day. Phil was playing in the last group and the sun went behind the clouds and the temperature must've gone from 75 to 60 in a matter of seconds or, or these couple of minutes that we were waiting. And, uh, it kind of shook us up how much colder it got and how quickly it got. And long story short, Phil ended up hitting four iron from this yardage Mm. on the green pin high two putting and winning the tournament. And, I remember we we had this discussion about, my gosh, we've got to make a, you know, it got so cold so quickly. We then had to reference back to yardages from much earlier in the week when it had been much colder. We trusted what we were doing, trusted, you know, the read that we had relative to the adrenaline in his body. And he ended up hitting two, two clubs more on the green pin high two putting and winning the tournament. And, uh, you know, whether you're talking about temperature or adrenaline or what have you, you'd be amazed with some of these guys or the average golfer might be amazed, you know, with some of the adjustments that you have to make.
0: Yeah. And at what point in your career did you make it a standard practice to document the shots and the situations and those yardages that you you could reflect
2: back to? I did it. I did it on virtually every shot very early in phil's career and uh, at the time we were playing a tournament in denver of course at very high altitude and phil had a lot of success phil's had a lot of su- success his entire life playing at altitude he won the tournament in mexico this past year he won a u.s amateur in denver he's just very adept at getting out there and at high altitude pulling clubs and we kind of had this theory that whenever. At least when I was working for Phil, whenever we got between clubs at high altitude, we would always hit the lesser club hard mm-hmm. because he, he could always get more out of, you know, he could, he could create more speed when he needed to. And so we had all his success in Denver and we were documenting clubs and I just started doing it everywhere, you know, especially when it came to things like temperature and of course the wind. And, uh, it was a very valuable asset to have out there at times as the years rolled on. But what happened as as we got later into into Phil's career is the equipment started changing so radically, whether it be you know the drivers or the golf ball, and uh, all of a sudden a lot of the notes and a lot of the information we we had became obsolete, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you you didn't have that wealth of stuff to go back on, and uh, you know at a place like Augusta where where you'd accumulate all this information, but. Uh, For a number of years in in our relationship, uh, it was a very valuable thing to have and and still something that I would do every day if I was still caddying. Yeah, no doubt. You've spent time, I mean, in fact, you rode
0: shotgun for 25 years, one of the best players that's ever lived. But at the same time as that, you're also around the best players that ever lived. And through observation, you're learning different things. And before I ask the question, I guess I'll tell a bit of a story is I was amazed at a conversation that I overheard in a practice round at Baltus a few years back, the PGA Championship, where Jordan's playing a practice round with you guys. And it was the 15th hole, right before that par three, before the back to back par fives. And right. Uh, Pin was center of the green. It's a pro, uh, not so pro I'm not, it's, a, it's a Wednesday practice round. And you guys started talking about a yardage. It might have been something like 172, 173. And the conversation of PALS9 came up and I thought, wow, they've even got code. That's so cool. And Uh Phil Phil proceeded to hit whatever PALS9 is to about two feet, birdie the hole and win the hole. And uh, it it just struck me as how nuanced the conversation between caddy and players and how darn good these players are. Can you put into context, I guess, how good – the best players in the world are versus those players that maybe keep their card for a long time versus those players that fall off
2: and maybe what the difference you've observed is? Wow, that's such a great question. I think that, uh, first of all, I I think that some guys are born, uh, very few of them, with this innate confidence that that they think or they realize that an early age is going to take them very far. Whether mm-hmm. you, and I'm talking about your your Tigers, your Phils, and your Jordan Spieth. I know that very early in my career with Phil, Phil basically took me aside at one point and said, "You know what? I'm going to win a lot out here." <laughs> <laughs> and I was I, I was like, "Great!" You know, <laughs> he he knew he knew at age 22, 23 that he was going to win you know, 30, 40, 50 tournaments on the tour. And it was just a matter of him executing. More to your point, I think that, you know, relative to great, great players, as opposed to guys that maybe, you know, are struggling to keep their card, one of the characteristics they, send, they tend to have, and, and to refer back to, to Tiger, Phil, and again, Jordan, when he went on to win the Open Championship a couple of years ago, I think you have these rare players that are capable of playing the best golf of their lives On the biggest stages they'll ever play on and i think that's rare in golf and you know i would have thought that uh you know the best golf that i ever saw phil play in terms of the best round you know might have been when we were playing at you know bob hope and we were in 30th place and there was a gallery of 20 people on a you know on a nondescript day when you weren't necessarily playing in the last group on national television right But in Phil's case, the single best round of golf I ever saw him play, you know, he played in the last round of the 2013 Open Championship to come back from five behind to win by three. And I think that that's an example of these guys and how incredibly confident, competitive, how great they are and how they have something going on in their minds that enables them to do that. I mean, look at those putts, look at those shots that Jordan hit, you know, coming down the stretch against Kuchar. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing, you know, when, when I see, you know, highlights of that, or when I was lucky enough as a caddy for Phil to see Tiger win, you know, multiple times on, you know, at the masters or whatever the case may be. And you're just amazed at the end of the day with what these guys were able to do with the world watching and, and, you know, the biggest championships they could ever play for on the line. Mm -hmm. And, um, this is something I, I could talk about for half an hour and I don't want to bore you or your listeners, but you can see this, this ingredient. You can see this asset that some of these guys have very early on. It's not hard to see when you're out on the tour, in my opinion. You can tell the guys that are, there's a difference between these guys that are really good and the guys that are potentially going to be great. It's the way they carry themselves. It's the way they play under pressure. Obviously, a guy like Brooks Kepka is showing that now in spades this year. I mean, for that guy to say the things that he did to the press this year around the times, you know, he was contending there at Shinnecock and then to go out on Sunday to execute and win. I mean, that is a guy that has a gift, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and uh, he's going to take full advantage of it.
0: There's a quote that comes to mind, and wide receiver, Miami Hurricanes back in the 90s, big-time players make big-time plays on the biggest of stages. I can't quite recall who it was. Maybe you do. But you probably heard that quote, but that's what you're you're speaking to. Yes. it's, It's hard to explain where it comes from, but what I'm interested in understanding now whether it's from your broadcast experience uh, most recently or, or your experience observing or, like I said, riding shotgun with Phil, how quickly could you realize something has shifted? And what were the tells, if there were any tells, that this was going to shift in a in a direction where greatness was just going to show
2: up? Well, if you're talking like what I was seeing in Phil...
0: Yeah, what, what were you seeing in Phil that kind of
2: told you, well, hold on, I need to get out of the way here because this is about to get fun... <sighs> Oh man, that's uh <laughs> so many things. Um I mean, the first time I ever caddied for Phil, I ever physically picked up his golf bag was in a US Open qualifier in 1992. And he had, you know, just won his third NCAA title at Arizona State. Flew to Memphis to try and qualify for the US Open, and this was at a time when, you know, Tiger Woods wasn't around. So this was at a time when people were thinking Phil could, you know, could potentially there were a couple of magazine articles that referred to him as the next Jack Necklace, potentially, and so he came out with a lot of fanfare. Quite rightly so, he had played great. Wins this third NCAA, comes to Memphis, and, and, and is so exhausted from his winning the, the 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 college tournament the week before, he doesn't even play a practice round, and he has to qualify with a lot of a lot of focus on him. I mean, there were a lot of companies after him. There were a lot of people very interested in what he was going to do, and he was. Basically putting it all on himself in terms of qualifying for this US Open It's one thing to say you're going to play there, but you have to get out there, qualify and do it. And uh, he shot 69 the first round. It was a 36-hole qualifier there in Memphis, and he had to shoot another 69 or so to qualify. And in the second round, he broke the course record. (laughs) And I literally, you know, we were out there. Again, this is the first time I'm physically seeing him play. And I was, you know, on, on those occasions where he would drive it off the fairway, I would be looking under trees and he would be looking over trees. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I have I have got to forget everything I think I know about catting right here because this guy, he's hitting shots that I can't even imagine in my mind's eye here. And, uh, you know, he knocked it in for 62 or three on the last hole. I remember going back to my little hotel room in memphis tennessee and turning on espn and it was the first story on sports center that he had gone out with all this heat on him and qualified the the u.s open in this kind of fashion and i thought to myself my gosh i mean this as lucky as i am to have this job and as much as i've heard this this guy is good i've got to uh i've got to get on board quickly here and 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 it was and it went very quickly i mean he he made it uh he made it very apparent very quickly that he was going to be a great player and then he didn't give it the darn about age, just like he does now at age 48 or 49, whatever he is. Back when he was 22 or 23, he was ready to mix it up with everybody.
0: Yeah. Do you think those things are genetically inherited or do you think that they can be
2: developed? I think about that a lot. And the answer is I'm not sure. I'm really not sure about that. I, I, I want to say that that to, to a large degree, there's some kind of genetic you know, Mm -hmm. application there. Um, uh, But uh, there's also no substitute for hard work. And one of the things that I learned about Phil very quickly is that he outworked everybody. You know, people will come up to you and say, boy, you know, your man's so good. You know, he won this or he won that or he shot 65 on Saturday or Sunday. And I remember thinking this is Phil's a, a no BS guy when it comes down to working and he can be on the range, you know, with his best pals around. And Phil is working. And there were many, many occasions where, you know, where, you know, somebody would come over and try and engage Phil when he was on the range on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever the case may be. And he'd say, hey, I, I just don't have time for that right now. I- I'm working here. Mm-hmm. And, and he would go home and work hard and, you know, and, and, and just as hard and hit balls until dark or hit, you know, the, the old proverbial cliche about hitting balls until your hands bleed. Well, that's what this guy did and does. So, you know, while he may have inherited some incredible, you know, ability to, you know, to be this, this guy that's very, very comfortable in these big stages, he, I, I think to a large degree, these great players outwork some of the other guys on quite a regular basis.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that it's neither – positive in one direction or the other on genetics or nature or nurture to simplify it it's a combination of both it always is there are certain markers that come from um, inheritance from parents or grandparents or other family members and there's certain things that can be acquired over time and and one of those things interestingly enough as you touch on practice right there is that they best players in the world whether they're youth collegians or professionals I'm not afraid to do the hard work, that callous, earning, blood-bringing, hand-hurting work. But at the same time, they develop this efficiency and uh, whether it's Jim Furyk or Phil Mickelson and uh, some other names come, up, come to mind, whenever I've been around either observing or in the area um, and I catch earshot or, or otherwise of the habits and behaviors of really efficient practice, Phil always struck me as someone that was getting the most of his time as well so it's one thing to put the eight hours in but it's another thing to know that your eight hours are a whole lot better than the next person's eight hours is that was that true in your in your mind
2: absolutely you you see it all the time where guys will grab a couple of buckets of balls and they'll head out there and you know they'll end up you know spending two-thirds of their times in a conversation about you know last night's football game or whatever and and, and that's fine that's that's great. That's, that's what's, you know, what does it for some people, but, but, you know, Phil was the opposite of that. He was, he was there to work. I mean, he'll, he'll talk about the ball game until he's blue in the face over lunch, (laughs) but you know, the, 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 uh, the range the the practice putting green, the chipping green in the golf course, that's his office. And, and I was always very impressed and, and, and very proud of how seriously he took his time out there and put it to good use. Because I, I think that one of the, uh, One of the most underrated assets a PGA Tour player can have is how adept you are at using your time. And I think there are guys that use their time much more efficiently than others.
0: It never ceases to amaze me also as I'm out there, whether I'm watching Jordan or Bo or any other players that I coach or those that were around and you're playing practice rounds and you're thinking, man, this player hasn't got it right now. And then lo and behold, (laughs) come come Thursday, they shoot 64, 63, and they're right in contention. Can you allude to how quick that turnaround can be by using maybe a specific example?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, There were a number in Phil's career. One year uh, in particular, this would have been in the early mid-90s, getting back to Tucson, which I referred to that term a little earlier. We were in Tucson one year and played late in the Pro am on Wednesday, and it was just a disaster. Phil had no command at all of where the ball was going. It was a golf course he'd won on previously. He took the tournament, you know, all tournaments very seriously, but it was a golf course where he had mojo and uh, he expected to contend or win anytime he teed up in Tucson back in this time period. And uh, he played really poorly in the pro-am, had a late tee time on Thursday, something like a 1.30. And this was before, before the internet, I think, and cell phones. And as a caddy, you would have to guess you know, when you thought your player was going to come out there if he didn't otherwise tell you. And I thought to myself, <laughs> boy, as, as poorly as Phil played in the pro-am, he's going to come out really early tomorrow. So for this one-something time, I think I got to the golf course around 8.30 or 9. And I stood there for a minute, and here he came out of the locker room. And we both you know kind of smiled at each other, knowing you know why he was there, and we went to the range and i 'm not kidding you when I tell you this, Cameron. He started hitting balls five minutes later, this is what whatever this is three three and a half hours before his tea time, and he never stopped, and he hit it all over the place. Nothing got better; we were literally just get you know anything we could kind of throw against the wall. We were trying to uh you know, st- you know, stand taller, stand shorter. You know, yeah. you know, widen your stance. Whatever the case may be, anything you could possibly say to a guy that's that's hitting golf balls, we tried that day, and to no avail. And it literally, it came within minutes of his tee time. He probably had hit ten or twelve buckets of balls at this point, and we were just grasping at straws. And at some point, I said, "Stand, let's stand closer to one." So he, he stood closer to one. It's now a couple minutes for his tea time. He's not even going to have a chance to putt. He hasn't eaten lunch. And he hit two or three shots in a row that actually went in his target. <laughs> so, But that was all he had a chance to do. We now had to sprint up to the first tee. He buried the first four holes and won the tournament. <laughs> and so tournament. You know, I remember, th- I remember <laughs> thinking to myself at the time, I mean, my gosh. I mean, it was one of the things that definitively made him so great is he could – plug something in and incorporate it, and it would, it would just yield automatic results. And uh, one year, he was playing in San Diego and had struggled most of the week, and we were playing the 10th t- the hole on Sunday in about 30th place. And he was, I, I was walking you know, 20, 30 feet from him, and I heard him say out loud, Oh my gosh, I got it. I said, what's that? He goes, no, I figured it out. I know what I've been doing wrong. <laughs> I said, great. And I think he birdied seven of the last nine or six out of the last nine and finished third. <laughs> but, but, it, but again, he could plug it in and he would have just incredible success seconds later. Isn't it amazing?
0: Absolutely amazing. Then another layer of uh, performance that uh, we know we experience um, that I want to understand from your side and then maybe observations on players as pressure. Um, How did you feel pressure? Because I've heard stories that Phil doesn't really feel pressure. In fact, Paul Azinger tells Mm -hmm. a good one that I won't touch on at this point, but your situations in big events, feeling pressure and whether it's by example, Phil, how he dealt with it or other players, what advice would you give for listeners out there that are trying to compete and maybe falling victim to um, the pressure that they're feeling?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think pressure, feeling pressure is necessarily a bad thing. I've seen world class golfers be very, very nervous before big rounds and go out there and play incredibly well and win the tournament in commanding fashion. So I think it's all in how you, you choose to accept, you know, what it is your body's telling you. And, uh, I think, you know, certainly, you know, for, PGA Tour players for great PGA Tour players where they're feeling pressure on the first tee on Thursday of a major, on the first tee of the Masters. I think, you know, part of the reason they're feeling pressure is because they know deep down they can win. And I think a lot of it has to do with how you process that and how you ultimately you know, deal with it on the golf course or as you make your way around. I think that, uh, you know, Phil, you know, I've never really had that conversation about what he felt or what he didn't, but, uh, you know, you could tell in him, in, in the way he was carrying himself and the way he communicated with you, that he knew he had a chance to win virtually every time he teed it up. And when you got to those big events, the ones that truly meant, uh, you know, that were truly special, the majors or, you know, you know, th- the chances he had to, uh, you know, to win a major for the first time or win yet another master's, whatever the case may be. I think that, uh, you know, when you saw those characteristics in him, it, I, I I always took it as him basically saying, "Hey, man, I've got as good a chance as anybody to win this week."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, very interesting. Who comes to mind when I ask the
0: question? Underrated players in your time, both in and around the PGA Tour in any
2: capacity? Wow, there'd be quite a few. I, I think that uh, I think I would classify David Toms as underrated. We played with David Toms the very first Ryder Cup match he ever played in, which was in two thousand and two in the Belfry. It was an alternate shot, and uh, Phil knocked it on the green about 30 feet from the hole. And We were standing on the side of the green while the European team was putting, and David Toms came over to Phil and said, I can't stop my hands from shaking. <laughs> and I looked down thinking, okay, well, they might be shaking a little bit, but they were shaking a lot. I mean, it was uh, you know, that right cut pressure that we all hear so much about. And David then went over, it was his time to turn his turn to putt at this point, you know, remarked his ball and made this 30-footer right in the center with his hands shaking. (laughs) And I I was always, you know, so impressed with him in big, you know, moments and certainly Phil lost to him on the last hole of the PGA in 2001 in Atlanta. David made a 10-footer right in the middle to win that tournament. But you would play with him in these Ryder Cup matches and you would get to these holes where the fairway was basically laid out. They wanted you to hit two or three on off the tee and David would hit driver into Mm -hmm. these bottleneck fairways where the fairways were ultimately 15 yards or or so wide. And, and I just thought to myself, he, he was, he was uh, a guy that maybe never, you know, he was very kind of quiet, you know, Southern gentleman type of, of individual. And I thought he never quite got the, uh, a lot of the uh, due that he was deserved, but he, he comes to mind for sure.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with a little bit of time that I spent spent around him. He's an impressive person and a little bit of time I got to watch him play. Also, an impressive skill set wouldn't uh, necessarily overpower any golf course, but could certainly get the job done with a set of skills that – didn't have that glamorous appearance, if you will, and so you touched on it. I have to ask a Ryder Cup question. Can you put into context for the listeners the your Ryder Cup experience? And it, you know, it's an exhibition, and the players don't get paid at all. And uh, but it means so darn much to them. As soon as the
2: national anthem, the honour of representing your country, et cetera, et cetera. I'll let you go go to town on it. Well, you said it yourself, Cameron. So darn much. I mean, that's that's. You know, it drives me nuts. You know, obviously we're we're a couple of weeks removed from the U.S. You know, not winning in in France, and nothing drives me more crazy than to come home or or to hear it suggested that well, it just means more to the European players. You have to tip your hat to the European team. They have they have to a large degree dominated that event over the last you know 25, 30 years, whatever the case may be. They've won significantly more than the U.S. has, but it means as much to our guys as it it does the Europeans. I can promise anybody that. I think that you could make the argument that it's the single greatest sporting event in the world simply because, as we saw yet again in France, the passion, the desire, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into playing in this event, you know, everybody wants it so badly. And as you said, they're playing for zero dollars. They are playing for nothing other than representing their tour, representing themselves, representing their country. And, you know, and you, you go to the first tee there at La Nationale and you were there and there's 7,000 people behind the first tee, you know, singing and dancing and carrying on. And it's just the most amazing atmosphere. And uh, all I can say is I think it's just the greatest event. If you're a true golf fan, if you ever have the opportunity to go, please do. It's just phenomenal. And, and I was lucky enough to, to, to work at 12 and to caddy in 11. And, uh, and and those were some of the greatest experiences of my life. And, and, you know, whether it's, you know, the highs of Just Leonard making that putt on the 17th green of Brookline to the lows of those uh, occasions where you don't win, it's just a, an honor to be there. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree with you more on every sentiment,
2: but particularly the recommendation
0: that if there's any golf event or any sporting event that um, you could put on the list, the Ryder Cup would hands down top the list for viewer experience vibe. And you get sucked into the excitement and the patriotism on both sides, quite frankly. Uh, bones you've been amazing with your time today i can speak for everyone out there which i'm sure you already know but it it never hurts to continue to say something we all appreciate your involvement in the game as a caddy and importantly the insights and wisdoms that you're sharing with us when you're broadcasting with nbc golf channel so i can't wait to hear more of you and i can't wait to um to share a bit with you down the road
2: cameron i really appreciate that thank you so much and, and thanks for having me on today it's been a real pleasure
1: Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.